I want to thank all of you for <clears throat> praying for my son Darden, uh, for Lisa, for uh, Susan and Sally uh, and I. It was almost two weeks ago, in fact it was two weeks ago, that uh, he was in a motorcycle accident. And some of you have seen pictures of this and it most certainly could have taken his life for sure and, and, and uh, probably should have left him with maybe head, spine, neck injuries, those kinds of things. Instead, uh, most of his injuries are, are orthopedic, broken bones, rods and bones, and, uh, and muscular, uh, shoulder out of joint, and those kinds of things. He'll continue with rehab, probable surgery in his future, but, but in time, a, a relatively full recovery. There's a lot of uh, lessons that uh, Lisa and I, that our family will sort through uh, in the coming days, Darden will sort through his own uh, through this, uh, not the least of which is actually how to steward what God has wrought. This is our reality and, and his. How do we steward what God has brought about? Uh, I've said this many times that in the midst of this, there has been so much, I want you to know, for us to be uh, thankful for. It was a phone call that no parent ever wants to get. And you know what I've thought about in the last few weeks? I really have, that uh, a lot of y'all have gotten that call. We're not alone in getting that phone call. Uh, and it's reminded me as well that there's, there's simply no one, I will never look anyone, there's not a person I'm looking at right now, I'll never see any, look anyone in the eyes who is not, as we've said, fighting a great battle. Have your own struggle, challenge, issue. None of us escape the fallenness of this planet. And these kinds of things, the reach of that is universal. The frailty of life, certainly, you know how it is when you face death, it's like your life suddenly becomes precious, right? You know, the, the frailty of life, it's wonderful to be reminded, it's terrible the way that we are often have to be reminded about the frailty of life. I want you to know that, and I think I speak for Lisa as well, that we have been painfully sobered, but not overwhelmed painfully sobered, but not overwhelmed. I could say the same about the text that we just had read to us. It's the text we're in as we go through the seven letters to the seven churches of Revelation 1 through 3. This last letter has me painfully sobered, but not overwhelmed. Jesus unleashes a rebuke. Did you catch it? That, that if it weren't in the Bible, we would probably go, no, Jesus never talks like that. Jesus would never say that about a church. But in the same breath, I want you to note, he gives us a word of promise. And we'll end on this one, on the promise. He gives us a word of promise that is perhaps the greatest comfort and hope in the Bible. I want you to open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 to 22. Uh, we're going to move through it quickly. It's been read over us. I won't read the whole. I'll try and grab the points that I want to make as we move through it. But we'll follow the outline that we've given you before of every letter. Each one of these letters begins with a statement of his character. He says his character, then there's the commendation, then there's the correction, then there's the exhortation, then there's the promise. And every letter flows along those lines. So let's grab each one of those categories as we go through this text. Revelation chapter 3, verse 14, To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of creation of God, says this. Now, what's interesting about this statement of character is in all the other letters, it, 
you read them, he generally says, the one who holds the seven stars, the one who does this, the one who acts. But when we get to this last letter, he speaks of his nature. Not what he does or what, how he acts or what he has in his hand, but of his core being. In particular, this phrase, the beginning of creation. What would that spark in the mind of the Laodiceans as they heard that? Well, sister church, Colossae, the book of Colossians, was read in Laodicea. And surely their mind would have gone to Colossians 1.15 where Paul writes these words, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. I read that because I want us to hold in our mind's eye this thought that everything is made by Christ, through Christ, and for Christ. Because this carries significant weight when we get to the promise at the back end of the passage. Now, what strikes me next, and us, I think, as we go through it, is rather than going from his character to his commendation, what does the text do? There is no commendation for Laodicea. How about that? We've read six letters. Here's what you're doing well. We get to Laodicea. Correction. He moves straight to correction. I'm going to do it in two parts, the correction, verses 15 and uh, 16. Uh, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. This is a long time ago, but uh, I was a teenager, and uh, me and uh, my best friend Scott Perry were, were with my dad. And, and uh, Scott, you'll remember this. I know you're over there somewhere. Um, but we're out, and we used to hunt in southern Kentucky. And uh, it was early in the, it had to be early in the fall because it was rather warm. And uh, me and Scott, my dad, are out hunting, and, and my dad's thirsty, and, and we end up going to a little tiny, not even grocery store, you know, it's just a little place that sold some drinks and stuff. They didn't have gas stations and stuff like this. It's Mennonite country, by the way. So there's a little Mennonite store. And uh, we go in, and, and my dad's so thirsty, and of course we are too, and you know, if, 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 if my dad could have got a beer, he would, but it was a Mennonite store. We're not going to get a beer in there. So he, 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 he got the next thing he liked, he got milk. He got this ice cold milk, and we get outside, and Scott and I are drinking sodas or something, and my dad pops that milk open. He downs this thing. I mean, he's halfway through it before he realizes it's spoiled, and he spewed this out, and then the profanity just flowed right after the milk, as typical of my dad. And Scott and I are tickled, you know, about it. You know, the more he cussed, the, la the more we laughed. Now, can you imagine, though, that Jesus would look at a church and throw up? That's what the word is. And you know, in your Bibles, it says he vomited. I will, I will vomit you. Unless we think, yeah, I would too, based on what they do. Well, let's always remember the letters are to us. So do we think, I mean this, do we think that as a church there are not things in our lives, in our community of faith, that make Jesus want to puke? Many years ago, I was 
taught this passage, and I was taught that hot and cold referred to, you know, a hot Christian on fire for the Lord, and then there are cold Christians. In other words, a Christian who's just Christian and in, in name only. Uh, that's not really what this text teaches, and I want to walk you through that. One of the reasons I would say that is there are several, but I'm just gonna, for time I'll give you this one. You know, when we read these letters, we always want to keep in mind that one of the key interpretive tools we use is the geography and culture of the actual city in the context. And so when we read a particular letter and it says things about this particular city, we go, well, that's true because this is what happened in that city. There is an abundance of evidence here that Jesus was not talking about hot Christians and cold Christians. One, one would simply be this. That's not the way they thought. That's how we think. See, the Laodiceans wouldn't have been thinking in those categories. Does that make sense? This is our categories, hot spiritual, cold spiritual, not at all. They're thinking something very, very different. When the letter arrived in Laodicea, Laodicea was at this time a thriving city. It was, we believe, the wealthiest of all seven. So, so we've come to the, to, the, to the affluent city of Laodicea. It was a banking center. Uh, and it was, uh, you know, for us, maybe Charlotte, maybe Wall Street. It, it, there was a lot of financial liquidity there where people actually came to Laodicea to cash their checks or, you know, to transfer the bonds or whatever instruments they were using. It was a banking center. It was also uh, very known for its uh, textile manufacturing. They had a lot of jobs in Laodicea. And they had a certain product they were famous for. I've got a picture here of, a, of some sheep, and, and you'll notice the black ones uh, this is what Laodicea was known for, this soft, velvety, black wool. Now, Laodicea was located on the crossing of two trade routes, and so this wool was valued locally and globally as traders came, and they would take this black wool from Laodicea around the world. Laodicea was also a medical center. You know, this is like Pergamum. You remember the temple of Asclepios, the god of healing? They had a temple there as well. But in Laodicea, they had a particular specialty. Their specialty was ophthalmology. That in Laodicea, people came from all around to get Phrygian salve. They call it Phrygia as the region there. So Phrygian salve. And it was out of Laodicea that they developed this salve that you heal eye diseases, which certainly were quite common. For all that it had, Laodicea didn't have the most important thing for a city in that day, and really for any city, quite frankly, they didn't have a good water supply. See, this city sprouted out because of the trade routes, not because of the river, not because of the lake. So they didn't have their own water supply, and they had to pipe, literally pipe their water in from other regions. I've got a picture here of a literal pipe in Laodicea today. This is how the water came in. Many of these pipes would be very calcified, by the way, because it was loaded with minerals. It was you know, not, very, not very good, quite frankly. But they'd bring this in from miles around. One place they might bring it, if you look six miles to the northwest of Laodicea, you would see the city of Heropolis. Now, when you look at Heropolis, I'm standing in Laodicea, this mound, and you're looking at Heropolis. Heropolis was known for its hot springs like Hot Springs, Arkansas. People came from all over to go to Heropolis. Why? To be healed. I mean, honestly, the, 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 the mineral baths, we're talking boiling hot water that, you know, you could get in and be healed in. Now, when you look at that, that's not snow. Guess what that is when you look over at Heropolis? What would it be? 
Yeah, it's mineral deposits. See, this, these springs would flow out, and I mean, this is hundreds of years, flow out, and over time, it just created these, you know, this bright white mineral deposits. There was another city, if you look to the east of Laodicea, and you would be looking toward Colossae, Colossians, the book of Colossians. Now, you know what's on top of those mountains? Snow. Guess what kind of water Colossae had? Frigid. I mean, quite frankly, as cold as it could get. This was mountain melt would come off in Colossae, and they had kind of the best water around, so to speak. Now, when I describe that geography, I want you thinking, when Jesus says hot, cold, you see, you begin to understand, okay, this is what he's talking about and referring to. When they would transport water, either from Heropolis or if they got water from Colossae, or they got water from the south, which they did. They would bring from a city in the south, they'd bring water up. By the time it got to Laodicea, guess what it was like? What was it like? Lukewarm. It was tepid. Now, I want you to think in these categories. It was not useful, truly. You see, see, cold, Mark, is wonderful, refreshing, hot. It's amazing. It's healing. So it's not there's good and there's bad. It's there's useful. There's you're, you're, you are what you were made to be. And then there's lukewarm, not useful. Before we look at what what made them lukewarm, okay? So, because we're going to, why were they lukewarm? How did he know they were lukewarm? Well, he's going to tell us. But before, I want you to put this in your mind. Whatever makes Jesus throw up has got to be at some level worse than losing your first love, than sexual immorality, than doctrinal defection, than holding to the teaching of Jezebel, so to speak, than, than false teaching. Uh, in all those, the previous letters, right, they, they, they had that as a correction. He rebuked them, but he didn't throw up. So what makes Jesus puke? How does he know they're lukewarm? This is the correction part too, verse 17. Here's why. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are, mark these words, wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Let me give you two phrases that I think capture this. You are self-deceived and you are self-sufficient. They really go hand in hand. Self-deceived and self-sufficient. This is why most commentators take the letter to the church at Laodicea and recognize it's probably the one that fits, you know, this is the glove that, that, that fits the hand of the American church best. It's like we just slide right into this thing. It's as if affluence has done what affluence can do to the soul that's not grounded in Christ. It has blinded the Laodiceans to their spiritual, they, they don't even see their spiritual condition because their physical condition is so wonderful. Y'all, it's not our imagination, it's not mine, and I don't think it's yours, that when we have a global partner here, whether it's Stefan or someone from South Sudan or someone from Comus, and they stand before us, and you know, they just share, very humble people, and, and, and we sit there, I sit there, and I'm always going, what do they have that I don't? Because their faith is 
It's a different level than mine. Let me tell you what they often have. Nothing, hardship, challenge, persecution. Let me tell you what I have. Affluence, plenty. Uh, truly, we do. And there's a marked difference in that faith. Theirs and mine. Affluence has never been kind to the church. And y'all, this is family talk. If we think we can swim in the affluence of Middle Tennessee, where we live, and our faith not be shaped, affected, possibly seduced by it, we're self-deceived. We're deceiving ourselves. Not apologizing for where we are. We need to steward where we are. But we can be seduced by it. Meredith Kinder shot me a text this morning. He, had, he was here last night, and he had been reading something on this passage. And someone had described uh, comforts and amenities as a, quote, soft prison, end quote. I thought that was really good. Now, notice how perfectly Jesus rebukes, his rebuke fits their context. You think you're rich because you're a financial center, you're poor. Uh, you think you're clothed in the finest clothing because of all that black wool you export everywhere, you're naked. And the eye salve everybody comes to get, you think helps their eyes, you're blind. Now, is it wrong to have wealth? I want a really clear answer on this. I'm asking you, is it? No. No, it's not. Is it wrong to have fine clothing? No, you guys. Is it wrong to have the best medicine you can find? No. What's wrong is if that is your sufficiency. If, if that's your trust, if that's your banking on, you see. Then we move into places that are, that are nauseating to Christ. Well, how do we live in such a way, honestly, and Again, how do we live in such a way in our affluence, y'all? In my affluence, how do I live in such a way that I'm not seduced by it? That I'm not self-deceived nor self-sufficient? Well, Jesus' answer is not going to surprise us, I don't think, but maybe in some ways it will, verses 18 and 19. He says, I advise you, this is his correction, I advise you, or this is the exhortation, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed, and I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Never, ever remove verse 19 from the context of this, because when he rebukes so harshly, note where it comes from. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. You know, Jesus, you know, Michael says it often, God's not angry with you. He's not. And Jesus is not like, I can't believe y'all do this. I am so... It's not. What, what's the heart? Where's, what kind of heart is expressing this? Please note, those whom I love. It's out of a broken heart, you see, that he invites us to be zealous and repent from these things. Well, he says, purchase or buy from me gold refined by fire. That's the key phrase, by the way, buy from me. You know, come, in other words, it's, it's about come to me. 
Gold refined by fire. 1 Peter 1.17 speaks of our faith being like gold refined by fire. We come to Christ with our faith. It's our faith that when we come to Jesus, we actually get not black wool. What do we get? We get clothed in righteousness. We come to Jesus in faith. What do we get? A big bank account? No, we get all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly place. We come to Jesus in faith, you see, and our eyes are open and we see, oh my, there is a spiritual world more real because it's eternal than even the physical world we're in. You see, we come to Christ. We get a little confused maybe by that buy from me. Well, Isaiah speaks of buying from Christ, these, buying from God these things without cost. It's that idea because reality is this. Look, there's nothing you own that you can go to Jesus with and buy something from him. Here, Jesus, I've got this much money and give, I've got this. Will you give me? No, you, that's not the whole Bible is totally tells us that's not the way we interact with Christ. We come in faith. We come with what I would call the currency of dependency. The currency of dependency. Because we are clothed in his righteousness. We are, our eyes are open spiritually. When we come to Jesus, not with everything we have, right, our, our resources, but when we come with nothing, when we come with what we don't have, what do we bring to Jesus? You know what I bring to Jesus? Jesus, here's my sin. Here's my rebellion. Here's my self-sufficiency. Here's my self-deception. See, that's the currency of dependency is I'm bringing my sin. And what do we get from him? His righteousness. He goes on from here to the promise. And we'll land on this. Verses 20 and 21. Behold... I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne. As I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Verse 20 uh, is, uh, is probably one of the, the most misunderstood passages in the Bible or, or, or misapplied. Um, I actually came to faith in Christ, someone describing this verse to me, because they said, Jesus is knocking on the door of your heart if you'll invite him in your heart. How many of you came to faith in so maybe that way? Maybe others of you? I, you know, many of us do. It's not wrong per se, okay? But when we look at the verse in its context, I think we all agree this is Jesus speaking to the church, which means this is a verse not to when you're not a Christian, it's to you when you're a Christian, it's to, it's to believers. You talk about an odd picture, by the way. Could you imagine this morning that we're sitting here right now and we have just sung these amazing songs about Christ and we have exalted Jesus and we've opened up this book and now I'm reading his words and we're bowing down and we're worshiping and exalting the risen Christ together and somebody knocks at that door over there and someone walks over and leans in and says, who's there? And the answer is, it's Jesus. I mean, my thought would be, I thought you were already in here. And Jesus says, no, no, I'm not. I'm actually out here. Will you let me in? That's kind of spooky. And that's the, you know, this, this, this is a picture of a gathered church where Jesus isn't. How did that happen? To deal with self-deception self-sufficiency, and to avoid the seduction of affluence. Jesus does not say, get rid of it all. If he did, I would tell you right now, give me your shoes, you know, something like that. 
No, he doesn't say get rid of it, sell it, sell the house, get rid of all your nice things. You need to, he doesn't say that, does he? He said as a rich young ruler, that was a different thing. But in this context, he doesn't say that. And why doesn't he say that? Y'all, because our problem's way bigger than just us giving things away or downsizing or letting go. Our problem is in here. Those are just the symptoms to deal with the seduction of, influ- of affluence, he makes himself available for dinner. What? He makes himself available for dinner. This is, this is the solution. The word dine here is a very specific Greek word that describes the evening meal. They had other words like we do, breakfast, snack. You know, nibble this or that. This was the evening meal. Uh, this was the time when there was no hurry. This was, let's gather, let's be with, let's relate, let's fellowship, let's talk, let's engage. There's no hurry. This was the meal of shared life. And in antiquity, this is what meals represent. Why is there often so much in the Bible about meals? Why is our aim and why is our future the marriage supper of the Lamb? It's not the marriage, you know, it's not a, you know, we're going to go on an outing with Jesus forever. There's going, to be a, there's going to be a meal. Why meal? Because meal is a picture of intimacy and relationship. Jesus makes himself available for dinner. Why dinner? Why this picture? Now you have to stick track with me on this thought. I've said the problem's not out here about just letting things go, giving up, downsizing. The problem's in here. It's our heart. The problem is not what we have or how much we have. It's what we want. The problem's what we want. So you can let something go, but I'm going to tell you, when the enthusiasm wanes, you're going to go get more, and we'll get more. It's our want. It's our heart. Uh, we were, Lisa and I were sitting with Darden Last week, and I don't know how we got to talking about this, but we were talking about um, Lisa's mom's funeral and um, what happened there and things that were said. And Darden said, do you remember what I said? And I literally did not remember him saying this, but at the funeral, and there's only maybe 15, 20 of us around the, the graveside, and I had said, does anyone want to share a thought about Mimi? We called her Mimi. You know, uh, uh, you know serious or, or, or funny, just it makes you think of Mimi. And Darden said this. Darden shared with family, he said, he said, man, I remember the time when I was 10 and Mimi let me eat a whole box of Little Debbie Cosmic Brownies. <laughs> the whole box. He said, man, I, was, I got so sick and I cried all night because when Darden was 10, 11, 8, 9, 10, he used to cry when he couldn't go to sleep. He'd get frustrated and worked up. He'd start crying. He said, I cried all night. But then he said, I guess... That's what happens when you get what you want. And I thought, yeah, because at 10, your wants are out of whack. They're unhealthy. You don't know. But then I thought, at 55, my wants can be out of whack, unhealthy, out of bounds. And what I need I need somehow for my wants to change. How do our wants change? Have dinner with Jesus. What, what, what do you mean have dinner with Jesus? You, you fellowship with Christ. You talk to him. 
You eat with him. You engage with him. You communicate. You share. You grow in your relationship. It deepens. Y'all, everything starts there. This is, this is the heart of it. Relationship that's deepening and growing with Christ. And when that's happening, you see, we are being transformed from the inside and our wants begin to change. And we begin to realize dining with Jesus as a way of life that He is our greatest need, our deepest satisfaction, and all that's required to be who I was made to be and know life as I was made to know life. Now connect that with what we said about Colossians 1. All things were made by Christ, through Christ, and for Christ, including you. And therefore, only in Christ am I fulfilled. He's my truest identity. He's my all, because I was made for Him, by Him, and and through Him, you see. And when we are in Christ, can I tell you what happens? We're hot. We're, we're, we're healing because Christ is healing. And we're cold. Like a cold, refreshing, mountain snowmelt drink. Because we're made to be that. And we are in Christ. Communion with Christ is what you and I need more than anything the world has to offer. Communion with Christ is what you and I need more than blank. Keep filling it in. We won't explore this fully, but we will talk about it some in the next couple weeks because we still have two more weeks in in Revelation. We're going to grab some parts of, we're going to grab chapter 4 and some other things. But Warren Wiersbe uh, captures verse 21 so beautifully when he says, the dining room has become the throne room. What a great picture. Y'all, we were made to rule with Christ forever. And the dining room becomes the throne room. I don't know that there's a greater comfort nor hope in the Bible. Have you noticed that Jesus has brought us full circle? That that he begins with, I put you in my mouth, I want to spit you out. But he ends with, let's eat together. The, the, The purest form of fellowship and intimacy. It's a great picture of the life of faith. It's sobering to think about, really, when we consider the text, that there are things in our life that cause Jesus to gag. But what an amazing picture that the very, you know, the very things that cause us to gag do not keep him from what? Can I eat with you? See, that's love. He's always going to keep coming at us. Yeah, there's things in our life. He's going to be there. I think it's very interesting, too, that that this verse 20, it says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears what? What's the text say? My voice. It didn't say, and anyone who hears me knocking, 
No, he said, if you hear my voice. So clearly Jesus is knocking through his word. You, you, you know, I don't want to be legalistic. You know, none, we never want to be this way. But you cannot have dinner with Jesus without your Bible. This is voice to you and to me. So what? What do we, what do, we do? I'm, I'd like to do something a little different today. I'm going to invite you to stand with me. We'll dismiss with this, but... I want you to hear the voice of Jesus, not mine. His voice is the one that matters the most. And so as you stand, I'm just going to read. I, 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 this passage came to my mind as I was thinking about this. I'm going to read Jesus' words from Luke. And it's just, just it's Jesus' it's Jesus's words. What is he saying to you this morning? For this reason I say to you, do not worry about your life as to what you will eat, nor your body as to what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap. They have no storeroom nor barn, and yet God feeds them. How much more valuable you are than the birds and which of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life's span or cubit? Even it speaks of an inch or makes you, make, make you taller. If then you cannot do even a very little thing, why do you worry about other matters? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. But I tell you, not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass in the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, how much more will he clothe you, men of little faith? And do not seek what you will eat and what you will drink, and do not keep worrying. For all these things the nations of the world eagerly seek, but your Father knows that you need these things. But seek his kingdom. And these things will be added to you. Do not be afraid, little flock. For your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. And God bless.